Oh, I have the voice of power. If any, can turn me down just a little bit in the house, please. If any parents have children ages four to seven, you can dismiss them to stepping stones. I was telling some of the elders this morning as we were praying, Malachi is a hard book to preach because it's a book full of rebukes, pointing out of faults. Well, all of us know that we have faults and make mistakes, and none of us enjoy having those faults and mistakes pointed out to us. Both of those are part of being human. But we can also be blind to our own faults and mistakes And if we don't see them, and if we don't admit them, then we're more likely to continue them. And our faults and mistakes often result in harm and pain. But when they are pointed out to us, we have the opportunity to work to correct them. Well, today we continue our sermon series in Malachi. Last week we looked at Malachi 1. And we looked at two disputation speeches in Malachi 1. And in these, God pointed out the faults of the people of Judah. To summarize them, first, the people questioned God's love for them. Secondly, the priest had not honored God. And this led the people of Judah to not honor God with their offerings. And so God rebuked the priests and the people. Today, in chapter 2... God continues his rebuke from chapter 1. So I'm going to ask you to remain seated, and let's read together from the screen, Malachi 2, verses 1 to 9. Now just a note, if you're following along in the sermon supplement that was sent out on Friday, and maybe you got a printed copy, we accidentally, I accidentally lost the last part of verse 9. So you have to watch the screen to catch all of verse 9. So remain seated, and let's read this together. And now... O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And 
for I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So today we're going to be looking at not only verses 1 to 9 that we just read, but also verses 10 to 16. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, chapter 2, in chapter 2, God continues his rebuke from chapter 1. And in chapter 1, here are the two charges that God had. The people questioned God's love, and the priest had despised God with polluted sacrifices. But there's more. Go to the next slide. Here are more charges in chapter 2 that God brings against the priests and the people. So the charges against the priests. In verse 2, failure to honor God again. In verse 8, the priests have turned aside from God's way, and as a result they have caused many other people to stumble. Verse 9, the priests have corrupted the covenant of Levi, and they showed partiality. And then the charges against the people. In verse 11, they married outside of Judah. And in verse 16, divorce. Now, here's a question. Why is God highlighting these things? I already said at the beginning, we all have faults and none of us like to have them pointed out. Why is God highlighting all these things? Because in these ways, the people and the priests have turned away from God which means that when they turn away from God, they turn away from life, and they turn toward destruction and death. And so the rebukes are a form of rescue, and these rebukes are motivated by God's love. So let's look at these charges and some of the other comments that God has in chapter 2. God says in verse 2 to the priests, If they would not honor God's name... That is, if they would not honor God, God would curse their blessings. And God goes on to say that he already has done that. And these blessings would be similar to what we do in a benediction today. And so the blessings that the priests pronounced on the people were useless. They were empty words because God's blessing wasn't with it, wasn't behind it. Now, we know from last week that the priests were offering sacrificial animals that were blind, lame, and sick. So the priest and the people were going through the motions of worship, but in their hearts they valued people and things other than God more than God. That's another way to say that the priests and the people had idols, I-D-O-L-S. That's a Bible word. It's used quite a bit in the Bible, but we hardly use it today. And so that's a definition of idols, when we value people and things other than God more than we value God. You could also say that their loves were disordered because they did not love God above everything else. And that's important because only God deserves to be first in our lives. Well, in the book of Ezekiel, And if you remember two weeks ago, I was going through a history of Old Testament, and I mentioned Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, God told Ezekiel, who was a prophet, that the same thing was happening with the people in exile. Now again, think, why were the people in exile in the first place? Why had they been carried away from the land of Judah? Because they turned away from God. 
And part of that turning away had to do with their worship, that they were worshiping other gods. And so God is speaking to Ezekiel, who is a prophet in Babylon. So he's in the exile. He's been carried away. And he tells Ezekiel that he's going to deal with the people's idols, the things that they loved more than God. Now, I went through that history two weeks ago of the Old Testament, and there were two themes in that history. One, the sinfulness of man, and the second, the patience of God. And here's this example, and here's a a prime example again. People are going through the motions of worship of God, but their hearts are far away from God. That was happening with Ezekiel, which was before the exile. It's happening again here with Malachi. Now, let me just pause here and say this. All of us are worshipers. It's not as if there are some people, let's say this half of the room, you guys get to be worshipers today, and this other half, uh, you, you don't worship Okay, It's not like there's one group of people that worship and another group that doesn't. We all worship. We're all worshipers. The only question is, what or who do we worship? Now, when I use the word worship, here's what I mean. What or who do we value, desire, and appreciate? And we probably, if you stop and think about it, we have a, a list, maybe even a long list of people and things that we value, desire, and appreciate. But the point is, of worship is that God should always be at the top. And he's not with these people. Well, in verse 3, God says that he will rebuke their offspring. But the Hebrew word that we have translated in English as offspring could also refer to seed, as in crops. They're farming, how they have their food. And if that's the case, then God rebuking the seed would explain the drought and the crop failure that we talked about, that they're dealing with. That was part of their circumstance that they had. Then in verse 3, God also talks about dung. And that could refer to what is called offal, O-F-F-A-L. It sounds a lot like the word awful, A-W-F-U-L, and awful is awful. Okay, it's the internal organs of the sacrificed animals. And think, this is what the priests did. Somebody would bring an animal to the temple or the tabernacle, and the priest would take it and kill it, and take some of the blood and sprinkle it as part of the sacrifice. And part of the meat of the animal would be put on the altar to be burned, but all the internal organs would be set aside and carried outside the camp and disposed of. Now, I don't think God was being literal that he's going to take this stuff and wipe it on their faces. I think it's a form of dishonor. This was a culture that highly valued honor and avoided dishonor, and God says, look, you are dishonoring me, so I will dishonor you. And then in verse 4, God refers to his covenant with Levi. Now, the priests are descendants of Levi, and God established the priesthood with, through Moses. So in these terms, the word, the name Levi refers to earlier Jewish priests. But remember that a covenant refers to a covenant relationship. And God says through Malachi that the earlier priests 
stood in awe of God, and they feared God, which is another way to say that they honored God. Now, if you, you read the history of the tribe of Levi, you will see that the priests obeyed God very imperfectly. But still, the point is, the early priests did honor God, and God gave them life and peace. But since this is a covenantal relationship, the relationship applied not just to those early priests, but to all of Levi's descendants, that is, all of the priests. And remember that a covenant not only provides blessings, but it also includes obligations. And the Levitical priests were chosen by God to lead the Jewish people toward God. Well, we see in verse 6 that the priests were supposed to give true instruction. That is, they were to teach the people from God's word, the Bible. And a priest was also supposed to live according to God's word. That is, they're to obey. And God says when a priest did both of those things, taught the people from God's word, and he himself lived according to God's word, he would turn many from iniquity. Now, we use the word iniquity as a synonym of sin. The word iniquity has the idea of twisting and distorting. And that's what sin does with God's word. Iniquity takes what God says is evil and portrays it as good. And you see that in our culture today. Iniquity also takes what God says is good and portrays it as evil or undesirable. And we see that going on today as well. Well, Why is iniquity a problem? Because all of us are naturally iniquitous. Now, I just have to confess, when I'm, I was preparing for the sermon and I came across the word iniquity and was looking at it and studying, I thought of the word iniquitous and I said, I have to put it in a sentence. Well, what does it mean that all of us are iniquitous? It means that we are full to overflowing with iniquity, which is why we need rescue. I was thinking of that when, when Greg was doing the prayer confession. And you have the part where, lead us not into temptation. Why is it that people and things outside of us are temptations to us? It's including evil things? Because there's evil inside of us. That's the iniquity. That's the twistedness of what sin does. We're all, we need rescue. Well, look at what God commanded then and still commands today. One of the priest's responsibilities, as we saw, was to teach the people God's word. And you see an example of that with Ezra, who was a priest after the exile, after the return from the exile. And when you read the account, it's pretty clear that it had been a long, long time since the people had heard God's word spoken. A long time since they had heard it. But people in the Old Testament are not the only ones that need instruction from God's Word. We all do. We all need regular instruction from God's Word. Why? Because none of us are morally neutral or naturally morally good. Now, that's bad for your self-esteem, but it is wonderful for your soul to understand that we, we need God's Word, and we need God's Word to, contr- to counteract our own selfishness. What's in us? Well, in verse 8, we're told that the priests in Malachi's day 
had turned away from God's way. So not only did the priests personally disobey God, but they were teaching something other than God's word to the people. And as a result, they caused many people to stumble by what they taught. That is, they caused them to stumble spiritually. Well, that's nothing new. I mean, it's still going on. I've been listening as I've been studying, doing some other study this week to some sermons by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in the sermons, a couple of them, he actually mentions what year it is. It was 1959. So I was thinking, oh my goodness, that has to be reel-to-reel recording, if you even know what that is. That's what came before cassette tapes. Yes, the two reels going around and around, that kind of thing. And he's talking, he, I can tell by the way he's talking about other preachers, what, what was going on in the, the larger culture. He was in London, so he's talking about England. And, he, and what he was saying was that lots of other preachers were preaching something other than God's word. It just wasn't the thing to do then anymore if you're going to be in. Well, there are plenty of churches, and I put that in quotes, today that are teaching something other than God's word. It's all around us. Well, then in verse 9, God says that the priests have corrupted the covenant of Levi, that is, they've not kept the covenant. And this could be a summary statement, but God has one more thing to say. God brings another charge. Favoritism. So for people in a position of authority like the priests, this often means two sets of rules. There's one set of rules for the in-group, the people they like, maybe the people that are given little kickbacks and other exchanging privileges and things. And then there's the less favorable set of rules for all the other people. Well, none of us like favoritism when we're treated as one of those other people. Well, as a result of all of these failures, God will make the priests despised. And then, so that's the charges against the priests. And then in verses 10 to 16, God brings two charges against the people of Judah. Marrying outside of Judah and then divorce. So the first one. Their Jews had married outside of Judah. That is, they had married people from other surrounding nations. And if you read the book of Ezra, you see that's part of what Ezra is dealing with. That some of the Jews, after they coming, coming back from the exile, had married, intermarried from the surrounding nations. Now I have to say this, just because racism is an issue today. The rule that God gave for the Jews to not marry outside of Judah is not motivated by racism. Not at all. The issue centers on the worship of God. You see, you have Judah, and then you have all the nations surrounding Judah. Those nations around Judah did not worship God. And when Jews intermarried with people from these surrounding nations, almost always, the Jews were led to worship the gods of the other nations rather than Jews leading those other people to worship God. Now, an example of this that I gave two weeks ago in the history is Solomon, King Solomon. And I said he was both wise and foolish. He was a man of excess. In the book of Deuteronomy, 
that God gave through Moses, God told the people, he said, if and when you have a, a king, a human king, there's one thing he should do and two he should not. The thing he should do is write, copy for himself the law. And that's a great way to learn the law. But two things to not do, don't have lots of chariots and don't have lots of wives. Well, Solomon did both of those last two. He had lots of chariots and lots of wives. And one of the ways that he collected wives was through political marriages. It was an accepted practice of the day. It was part of the reason why kings had lots of children. Because he would marry them, and through those marriages, you would have better relationships with the nations around you. But if you remember what happened, if you've read that the Old Testament history, you know that when Solomon got older, his foreign wives led him away from worshiping God and to worship the foreign gods. And in Malachi, God called the worship of other gods faithless and an abomination, which means it's a very serious charge. You see, when God put the descendants of Abraham in the land of Canaan, it wasn't as if God had a map and he went, oh, let's see, I'll put him there. No, if you look at geography, and again, geography is a lot of fun. We don't get tested on it. Israel, or land of Canaan, is a land bridge. To the south is Egypt and Africa. To the east is Assyria and Persia and Babylon. To the north is Turkey, and then kind of going north and west is Greece and Rome. Well, all of those peoples had active trade with each other. They were trading goods back and forth. And if Israel's a land bridge, lots of peoples from lots of nations were going through Israel. And God's design was that God's blessings on the Jews there in the land of Canaan, combined with their loving obedience to God and their worship of God, would attract people from the nations around them to desire to worship God. That was the design. Well, just as God put Jews in the land of Canaan, God puts each one of us where he wants us. God calls us to delight in his love for us. God calls us to obey him and to reflect his goodness to others. And in doing this, you and I are lights in spiritual darkness. God also warns us to be careful in choosing our friends, that is, people who have influence in our lives. And God commands Christians not to marry a non-Christian. So that's the first charge. The second charge was that the priests and the people were divorcing their wives. Now, think with me for a second, and we're going to jump back into Genesis and then Deuteronomy. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the record of God creating Adam. He takes some dust and he makes his body. He breathes into him life. He puts him in the Garden of Eden. He gives him a job. Name all the animals. In naming the animals, Adam comes to the realization that he is alone. And so God performs the first surgery, puts Adam to sleep, takes out a rib. He makes Eve, wakes Adam up. And when he brings Eve to Adam, you have the first wedding, the first marriage. Okay, this means that marriage is not just a convenient human social construct, as we're told today. Marriage was created by God. But then we see in Deuteronomy 
that God permitted and regulated divorce because of the sinfulness of man. And if you read the Bible, you will see divorce is never encouraged in the Bible. In fact, God says he hates divorce. In the Bible, God likens marriage to his covenant relationship with his people, which is why the Bible tells us that for us to turn away from God is spiritual adultery, because he connects the two. Well, if you look in the New Testament, when Jesus was asked about divorce, and he was, there were two major schools of thought about divorce. The one way of thinking allowed divorce for pretty much any reason at all. And in this case, in that day and time uh, in Israel, it was the husbands divorcing the wife. So if the wife burnt the dinner, husband could say, that's it, you're gone, we're divorced. Okay, the other school said, no, it cannot be that easy of a thing. It has to be something, the failure has to be great. The failure of the wife has to be something great, such as publicly shaming her husband in some way, like she gets angry with him in public and she's yelling at him in public. That'd be a shameful thing for the man in that day, for that kind of thing to happen. So the second school of thought is it has to be something big like that. But neither of the two views took into account God's thoughts on the marriage covenant relationship. Well, apparently in Malachi's day, there was already easy divorce. In verse 15, God asks the people, did God not make them, did God not make husband and wife one with a portion of the spirit in their union? He's pointing back to Genesis 2, where God created marriage. And then in verse 16, God says, For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Now that word hate there is used in a covenantal sense. He may hate his wife actually, but here it really means a covenantal sense, breaking the covenant. So that now the verse reads, for the man who breaks the marriage covenant and divorces, he covers his garment with violence. And God says through Malachi, any man who divorces his wife in this way has been faithless and broken the marriage covenant. It was easy divorce then. We have easy divorce today. So we've looked at the charges against the priests and the charges against the people. But how does that apply to us? You and I struggle the same way the priests and the people in Malachi's day did with our own sinful desires. God hasn't changed. Technology may have changed, but God hasn't changed, and people haven't changed. Why did they act the way they did? Why do we act the way that we do? Our hearts are not morally neutral, and they're not naturally bent towards God. We are full of iniquity, full of endless self-focused desires, full of disordered loves and spiritual idols. And I don't say that to condemn us. This is, this is who we are. And this is what God shows us. This is us without God. We need God to work in us first to admit our mess and then to turn to God for his forgiveness and mercy.
And so God, God, part of God's plan in the Old Testament was for the priest to point the people to God and the point to people to God's provision for sin, which in that day was the animal sacrifice. Now, David himself in the Old Testament says, I know this animal and his that's blood doesn't actually take care of my sin. It was a pointer to what was going to come, what God was going to ultimately provide, which you and I know is Jesus. So let's contrast the priests that we've been looking at here in Malachi's day and Jesus. Okay, God has brought one charge after another on the priests. They dishonor God. They say, you know what, God, doing worship for you is just a pain. It's just no fun at all. But they're going through the motions, and they're wanting all the good things they can get, but they're ignoring God, the one who gives every good thing there is. They're offering animals that are lame and blind, something they wouldn't give their friend or their governor. Look at Jesus. Jesus is not in the line of Levi, but then neither was Melchizedek. And both of them were called priests of God. Jesus is the priest that all the Old Testament priests were pointing to. He's the perfect priest. You see, in the Old Testament, the priest not only took sacrifices for the people for their sin, the priest also had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Jesus never had to offer any sacrifices for his failures because he didn't have any. He perfectly obeyed God the Father. But not only was Jesus the perfect priest, he's also the perfect sacrifice. The priest, in a sense, had a guaranteed job. Why? They had to offer sacrifices for sin for the people. The people never stopped. Every day, they need, every day the priest had a job. They had steady income. In fact, sometimes they probably had more income than they could use from all those sacrifices. Jesus comes as a sacrifice, and we're told he's the once-for-all sacrifice. No more needed after him. No more sacrifice needed after Jesus. He's the once-for-all sacrifice. He gave his own life so that he could rescue us from sin and rescue us from ourselves. But Jesus does more than this. Jesus also gives Christians his spirit, and his spirit works in us over our lifetime to change us. He doesn't leave us as we are. He changes us to make us more like Jesus. But not only is, a, his, is Jesus the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice, he's also the perfect king. So he's not just our rescuer, but he's also our king. And he's the ultimate king who has all authority and all power. Authority not just over a little bit, but over the universe. And because he's our king and because he has this power and authority, you and I can have confidence in his rescue and in his love. It's, it's kind of subtle, but in the book of Malachi, one of the other themes, well, we already talked about the one theme of our sinfulness, but the other one is not only God's patience, but his love and how he pursues why is he even having Malachi speak to the people at all? Why didn't he just write them off? Because he made a promise. He said, you're my people. And in one sense, that wasn't conditional. He said, I've chosen you to be my people. 
And yeah, you're, you're sinful, you run away, you ignore, so I pursue you. And God does that with us as well. He chooses us. He says, I'm going to have a relationship with you, and I'm going to do everything needed for that relationship to work, including make everything right that we've broken, and then change us from the inside out. That's who God is, and that's what he's doing, and he does it through Jesus. And so we can also be amazed that God pursues us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for this reminder. Lord, it is hard. It is no fun at all to be reminded of our faults if we're going to be honest about our faults and our failures because they are many. But your love is greater. Your grace is greater and deeper. Your forgiveness is greater and deeper. Your mercy is greater and deeper. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for your faithfulness to the people in Malachi's day in pursuing them, to call them back to you, to, to try to turn them away from the way that leads to death and turn them back to life. And thank you that you work in us every day through your spirit as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a song. of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above praise the mount I'm fixed upon it mount of thy redeeming love here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. With to me, mercy never fails me, till the day that death shall lose me, I will sing, oh, I will sing. to grace how great a debtor daily i'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love here's my heart lord take it seal it seal it for thy cause
courts above. Your kindness yet pursues me, how your mercy never fails me. Till the day that death shall lose me, I will sing, oh I will sing. Your kindness pursues me, how your mercy never fails me. me, I will sing, oh, I will sing, this me, I will sing, I will sing, mm. and who wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We now come to our time in the service, um, praying for our prayer requests. We have one. Um, Pray for the Lord to bless each of us individually and as a church body with the knowledge of his will and enable us to walk by faith and not by sight. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, we, we thank you that we are able to come before you in prayer and know that not only do you hear us, but you answer our prayers. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you, you show us and you give us knowledge of your will. Father, that you enable us to, to follow you, to walk in faith, Father, and not by what we see, but by, by your Spirit, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We just have a couple of announcements before we close this morning. Um, just as a reminder, we have Sunday school after um, worship um, with the um, adults meeting here and children meeting um, in the various classrooms. Also, we have LifeQuest tonight at 530 here in the sanctuary. Um, also, just as a save the date, um, we'll be having our annual fellowship at Belvedere Plantation, November 6th. More details will be coming to that, but please mark your calendars for that. Also, um, as we did last month, we'll be having uh, communion at the Bossoms um, on October 24th at 3 p.m. Everyone is invited, um, but space is limited, limited. Please email the church office if you are able to come. Also, just as a reminder, um, our, our, election, our elections for... Um, I guess state state for different state and officials and things um, is November second. Um, so just as a reminder to vote if you are able if you are able, um, and if you have not registered to vote, registration is October twelfth. Um, please stand for the benediction. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.